Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. Um, my name is Michael Le Chevalier and I am the Associate Director of Lumen Christi. I'm also excited to welcome you, you on behalf of our co-organizers, the American Kuzanu Society, um, who has put together this series. Today's event is co-sponsored by a number of different institutions, uh, the Beatrice Institute, the Calvert House at the University of Chicago, the Genealogies of Modernity Project, the Harvard Catholic Center, the Nova Forum for Catholic Thought, and the St. Paul Catholic Center at UW-Madison. I'll now hand it over to Rob, who is moderating today's event. Rob? Thank you, Michael. And indeed, welcome to the seventh presentation in this series, Reason and Beauty in Renaissance Christian Thought and Culture. The series highlights that ways of rational and aesthetic work interlock and fed each other in Christian thought and culture in the Renaissance period. And we are very pleased to present this as a collaboration with the American Cruzana Society and our co-sponsors. You can find previous presentations, including Andante, Ficino, Madurata Fanta, and a tradition of women humanists, Titian, and others, up on YouTube. Upcoming presentations feature culminating presentations on the development and reception of some of the previous topics, including next week at this time of day, Tuesday, uh, 12 o'clock central, on the development of Ficino's thought, Platonic thought, uh, in combination with modern philosophy, including Cartesian philosophy, with Professor Headley's talk on uh, Cambridge Platonism. After that, we'll have a, an event on the seminal Anglican uh, thinker, Richard Hooker. And finally, an event with Peter, uh, Professor Peter Casarella on the passage to modernity. At any time during the presentation today, you can ask a question using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And after the presentation, I'll host a, a moderated uh, question and answer period with today's speaker. I would now like to welcome Professor Valentina Zafino. Professor Zafino comes to us today from Calabria in Southern Italy, but in usual time, she's at Rome where she teaches ancient medieval Renaissance and early modern philosophy at the Pontifical Lateran University and for Notre Dame's University, uh, Notre Dame University's Rome campus and program. Her research focuses on the reception of ancient thought and early modernity, especially in Nicholas of Cusa, early modern cosmology, Hermetic studies, the Cambridge Platonists and the Italian enlightenment. She has published widely on these subjects and on, on today's figure of Giordano Bruno. And we are very pleased to have Professor Zafino uh, speak to us all the way from Italy today. Professor Zafino, uh, may I invite you to, to turn on your camera and to unmute yourself. Good Wonderful. morning. Good morning and welcome, welcome to everyone. Thank you. First and foremost, I would, I would like to heartily thank the organizers of this uh, summer webinar series. In these troubled times, our meetings represent an important and very productive manner in which to share our research interests without leaving our countries. However, I hope to come to the United States again soon. I am grateful to the friends of the Lumen Christi Institute. And I'm very honored to be here with you as a member of the American Cusano Society. I would also thank you all for changing the scheduled time of this webinar. In Italy, it is 7 p.m., so this Tuesday I will not have to stay up late tonight. Well, okay. We are going to talk about Giordano Bruno and his Neoplatonic poetry of the cosmos. 
I know this is an evocative title for a seminar, and I believe that it could help us to go deeper into Giordano Bruno's thought, considering principally his relationship with Christian theology and philosophy. Bruno is one of the most relevant characters of the Italian Renaissance. This is due both to his adventurous life and to his original reinterpretation of ancient sources in the light of the new cultural scenario. Here I will analyze Bruno's image of the cosmos, focusing on his remodeled Neoplatonic background. In this context, as will be shown, the notions of reason and beauty are closely related to Bruno's fascinating claim regarding the infinity of the cosmos. Just for starters, I would call your attention to some key words which are fundamental in Bruno's thought. Pantheism, immanentism, heliocentrism, infinity, reinterpretation of the concept of nature, fuses in Greek, reinterpretation of ancient sources. The question I want an immediate answer to is, was Bruno the only one or the first one to affirm the infinity of the cosmos? Was he who affirmed the, the existence of infinite worlds, the heliocentric system, a pantheistic view of the universe or the annals of the divine principle? In fact, no. For instance, I just remember um, our Nicholas of Cusa or Copernicus. So why is Bruno still innovative in philosophical studies? I think the answer could be that uh, he was the only one to affirm all these theses together. With this paper, I will focus on Giordano Bruno's cosmology, highlighting, firstly, the importance of the ancient Greek sources, which are the basis of Bruno's concepts of reason and beauty. We will consider how this traditional pair of notions will be partially rethought by Bruno in a new poetry of the nature and of the cosmos, with at the center the Neoplatonic notion of harmony. Secondly, I will highlight the continuity Bruno draws from Neoplatonic tradition, marking the discontinuity he represents with Aristotelianism and scholasticism. In this sense, the similarities and differences between Bruno's philosophy and the Christian one will be considered. Meanwhile, I propose a sample of Bruno's texts in order to better explore his, uh, his own thought. Just as a very brief introduction, I would remind you that Giordano Bruno was a Dominican friar. He spent his youth in Naples, in Napoli, mostly in the convent of San Domenico Maggiore, the same convent where St. Thomas Aquinas once lived and taught. And in the library of this convent, Bruno studied Aristotelian medieval commentaries written by Thomas Aquinas and Albertus Magnus. However, Bruno was particularly interested 
in Neoplatonic authors, and also those who were not orthodox. He roamed around Europe, Europe looking for an academic environment to circulate his unconventional thesis. His unfriendly personality did not help Bruno in the, this endeavor. He was judged heretic by the Holy Inquisition in the 1600s and was burned to death in Rome in Campo dei Fiori, the beautiful square where there is the famous statue of uh, Giordano Bruno. His most important doctrinal problem was the denial of many Christian dogmas. In particular, Bruno proposed a pantheistic, immanentistic theology that asserted the identity of God, or rather the divine principle, and nature. In this sense, Bruno would be the source of modern pantheistic theories, such as Spinoza's. Moreover, the Spinoza strides, the debate that involved the German philosophers at the end of the 18th century, would focus on Bruno's thoughts. I would just mention Lessing, Mendelssohn, Jacobi. In addition, Schelling uh, would write the famous dialogue Bruno, reinterpreting Bruno in an idealistic manner. In this context, first of all, we must ask ourselves, is Bruno's thought properly pantheistic or rather immanentist? These two concepts might be partly equivalent, and it is how scholars seem to have understood them up to now. However, I wonder if Bruno identified the whole of nature with God, and this is properly pantheism, or if he identified a primary principle that was immanent, yet distinguishable from matter itself. We can see that, although in the latter phases of the trial, Bruno tried to convince the judges of his faith in the Jewish Christian God, he evidently did not refer to a personal God, but rather to a primary principle that lacked a relationship with what gives life in the incessant flow of accidental forms. The principle is also lacking will since it is determined by universal vicissitude. That is the law of harmony and this rules the becoming of the cosmos. The only Christian God feature such divinity still holds is that of intelligence. In fact, it is an intellect, a nous, and therefore separate from matter, even though it is immanent to it. In the light of these assumptions, I would like to consider Giordano Bruno's pre-Socratic sources, since I believe that uh, they are crucial to understanding his notion of God as the rational prin principle and cause of the beauty of the cosmos, and his relationship to the cosmos itself. We will see that Bruno's concept of God is neither supernatural, 
non-reducible to the world itself. Rather, he is a principle immanent to nature, to natural order, but different from the cosmos, as long as the divine principle is an immaterial intellect. The presuppositions of this conception are found by Bruno in pre-Socratic philosophy. And it is important to consider that Bruno's thought on reason and beauty is very close and derives from the Greek one. Thus, I can anticipate that for Bruno, the cosmos is marked by beauty because the cosmos itself is rational. And it is rational because it is divine. So a divine cosmos must necessarily be infinite because God or the divine principle has no limits. So why poetry? The answer is that what is divine explicates itself in time and space like beautiful poetry, which is a deep explication but without an apparent explication. Well, we must recognize that reconstructing the sources of Giordano Bruno's thought is far from being an easy task when one moves away from the late medieval and Renaissance context. Such historical and philo uh, philological difficult, difficulty is born from the uncertainty about Bruno's access to ancient texts, and most of all, from the few Greek sources known in the 16th century. In uh, La Cena delle Ceneri, the Ash Wesley Supper, Bruno talks about the Presocratics and the few rags we have from them. Rags uh, in Italian is uh, stracci. This might mean the few original ancient texts he knew. Therefore, we can easily state that Bruno studied ancient philosophers through medieval manuals and mainly through Thomas Aquinas' uh, Aquinas's commentaries on Aristotle's uh, works, but also through Aristotle's own metaphysics book one. It is thus paramount for us to keep in mind that Bruno's knowledge of the Presocratics was always mediated by secondary sources and that Bruno himself often taught texts to be by ancient Greek philosophers, while in reality they had been reinterpreted by medieval scholars. Hence, some of his remarks might not be precise or they might be wrong. Bruno considered the pre-Socratic philosophy to be the basis of true knowledge, which had been altered by later philosophers mostly Aristotle. I think this is very, very important. Bruno based his criticism of Aristotle on the reprise of pre-Socratic Antiqua Vera Philosophia, ancient true philosophy, which he deemed to be the one truth that Aristotle had wanted to cloud. However, Bruno found in pre-Socratic thought 
the fundamental themes of his own line of thought, the manichism of the rational divine principle, the supreme unity of matter and form, potency and act, the infinity of the universal one whole, the insensate becoming of, the rea of reality, which is moved by an infinite movement and governed by vicissitude. According to Bruno, historical past becomes absolute and the ancient models become crystallized as a reference point in order to grasp the unity of the whole. In fact, in ancient times, natural philosophy had rightfully understood that the unchangeability of the one also included mutation of the parts and that birth and death correspond to generation and corruption of elements, but not that of the living whole. Bruno separates natural from non-natural philosophers. Natural philosophers uh, were those who recognized the whole's unity, attributing each physical or metaphysical entity to the one substance. Logical or non-natural philosophers were those who had viewed the universal entity as a merely logical and abstract concept. Bruno drew the distinction between natural and non-natural philosophers from Aristotle's Physics Book One, but he deemed Aristotle himself a sophist and cited him as the main logical philosopher. According to Bruno, Aristotelian substance must necessarily be a formal principle that reveals nothing about nature's true structure. Aristotle had, no, uh, had not viewed reality on the basis of the vitalistic principle that enlivens it and produces the immanence of a form in matter. Rather, he had investigated nature through logical frameworks. Therefore, some of Bruno's main sources of immanentism were Heraclitus and the Aleatic School, that is the ancient ontological debate, and the Greek pluralists. Well, Giordano Bruno showed deep knowledge of Heraclitus' theories as perceived in the 16th, 16th century and often took up some of the philosopher's main themes. First and foremost, Heraclitus's thought focused on the topic of the cycle of becoming. And the same is true for Giordano Bruno's thought. I am referring to the image of the rota temporis the wheel of time. Together with uh, its ontological implication, these theories had important, important consequences at a cosmological level, since both space and time follow a circular movement. Bruno re-elaborated Heraclitus's notion of logos by deeming it the principle of both ontological and material reality. The unity of matter and form 
is uh, realized thanks to uh, the animating spirit that permeates the entities and gives birth to the cosmos as the whole and has the singularities that it includes. Bruno Logo, Bruno's Logos animates the whole as a, an archetypal fire, thus realizing the unity of the whole and making the multiplicity of entities divine, where divine stands as the emanation of the enlivening principle deriving from the whole, as the, the Neoplatonic philosophy affirms. Therefore, Bruno's cosmology is moved by enlivening forces and by the great cosmic law, a synthesis of the perfect harmony of a physical law. In this regard, I have to highlight that for Bruno, according to his Neoplatonic background, reason means harmony, because the logos that is rational a rational principle of the cosmos, organizes the cosmos itself following the rule of harmony. In fact, reason properly means harmony, and they both mean divine. The whole is divine because of its being rational or harmonically ordered, and it is rational and harmonic because of being divine. In other words, this is the ancient notion of beauty, not so far from the Christian one. Another common trait between Bruno and Heraclitus concerns the contraries, both from a logical and a metaphysical point of view. Heraclitus found the unity that contraries reach to be the most beautiful harmony, the fragment eight since only through the comprehension of opposites is it possible to reach the comprehension of reality and truth. Everything comes from the violent alternation of contraries and the reciprocal transformation produces the universal becoming that involves the totality of the cosmos. However, the constant flow of elements from one contrary to the other does not qualify as a chaos, but is, um, but is the highest harmony governed by the logos. The theme of coincidence oppositorum, coincidence of opposites, is fundamental in Bruno's thought too. The unstoppable dynamic movement of the cosmos makes in a circular motion the unity of contraries and then immediately makes them different once again. And the theme of the unity of contraries is strictly linked to that of becoming a fundamental topic in both Bruno's and Heraclitus's philosophy. The incessant movement from one terminus to its opposite marks in Bruno's view an everlasting motion that is featured in each entity, be it physical or metaphysical. Within such alternation, all things are included and they return in cycle. Therefore, according to Bruno's monism, 
the principle of reality is the whole, which includes all differences. About the Eleatics, I have to say that uh, although Bruno set, uh, set Parmenides' ontology against that of Heraclitus, he still gathered important arguments from it. As uh, I have already said, according to Bruno, due to the unity of contraries, becoming and being are not incompatible. The divine one includes the contraries and with them any possible display of the becoming being. Therefore, the multiplicity of entities and the intrinsic opposition they reciprocally demonstrate are but an apparent feature of reality. In this way, Heraclitus' being, which is dynamic, and Parmenides', which does not allow for differences within it, are included by Bruno in an ontology that safeguards becoming by not viewing it as different from unity, but rather as a part of the whole, motionless in the whole and becoming in its parts. In particular, the relationship between Bruno and Parmenides is marked by the theme of temporal infinity. As we have seen above, according to Bruno, truth, aletheia, in history is found as happened with the Presocratics and is hidden, as with Aristotle, in a circular motion that makes time the cradle of the logos, but also its oblivion. The momentary acquisition of truth is therefore um, increased by the revelation of being had in the past and is limited by the manifestation the being will give of itself in the future. Parmenides does not allow for the circularity of being, and he affirms that time is eternal immutability, excluding becoming, thus making the present the reality of the whole. Despite this important difference between the two authors, Bruno is close to Parmenides because, according to Bruno, time is infinite eternity. Therefore, he considers the world as immersed in time, which, contrary to what Parmenides, uh, Parmenides thought, does, does have a circular movement. And according to Bruno, time is ruled by universal vicissitude. In some ways, this is an extra-temporal eternity, since it escapes the laws of becoming and affirms the unity of contraries, among which is the perfect unity of past and future in an eternity that transcends events, yet comprehends them all. In some cases, the, attribute, the attributes of being, as described in Parmenides' fragment 8, seem to have significantly inspired Bruno's works. Parmenides' being is ungenerated, imperishable, entire, motionless, one, continuous, 
Bruno obviously had these features in mind when he wrote about the infinite one. Bruno's texts often mention Greek pluralist philosophers. In Anaxagoras and the Atomists, chiefly in Democritus, Bruno found a correct use of logic, which had led them to rightfully examine nature. As we have seen, according to Bruno, unity exists thanks to the multiplicity of parts, and this allows entities to have the same importance as the universal whole. Aristotle and the scholastics in general, on the other hand, did not understood that the small and not precious things, Bruno says, minzaria, is also part of the totality of accidents which constitute the unchanging cosmos. Uh, see the slide. Bruno considers the notion of minimum, that is the smallest part of the divine whole, under three different yet complementary perspectives. The atom is the physical minimum. The monad is the metaphysical minimum. The dot is the geometrical minimum. And Bruno is close to Democritus's notion of atomic minimum, an indivisible entity and essential unity of matter that is homogeneous and thus homogeneously divine because of the atoms that constitute it. He considered the atoms as the indivisible elements that make up infinite matter. Since physical elements are made up through the aggregation and disaggregation of the atom, atoms themselves, Bruno states that the whole is in the whole and that the ex existing infinite worlds are made up of a single matter. In fact, according to Giordano Bruno, infinite matter is the sum of infinite and infinitely small essential parts that in a perpetual aggregation, disgregation motion causes the composition of the cosmos. The fundamental breaking point between Giordano Bruno and Democritus, and the same can be said for all ancient atomists, lies in the fact that Democritus's cosmos is ruled by a mechanical principle rather than a vitalistic principle that is intrinsic to the minimum itself. Why Bruno's philosophy combines atomism and animism. As for Anaxagoras, we must briefly recall the importance that the idea of intellect has in Bruno's philosophy. According to Bruno, because of his Neoplatonic background, the world's soul is the formal principle of the universe and is immanent to universal matter. The production of entities from the infinite matter happens thanks to intellect, the most noble feature 
of the world's soul. Thus, the soul, which is intrinsic to the cosmos, is both form and cause of entities, and the intellect is an intelligible and the eternal unity of reality. According to vicissitude, it governs the cyclical becoming of entities and is the vital principle of the cosmos. Even though it is immanent to nature, intellect does not completely mix with it, yet it distinguishes peculiar forms from the divine one and it causes the accidents to emerge from the whole. Here, Bruno's text from Cause, Principle and Unity. If we are to compare Bruno's theory to that of Anaxagoras, the two philosophers appear to be very close. Anaxagoras, Anaxagoras pinpointed a divine principle the intellect that prompted the primary rotation that generated the cosmos. Intellect is separate from the rotation that causes the parts to become separate from the whole. And it does not mix with other things, although it is the principle that governs the multiplicity of the cosmos. At the same time, Bruno deems intellect to be the divine principle that governs the whole order and is responsible for, uh, for the individual forms that emerge from matter. According to both, therefore, the news, the intellect, is the principle that governs all things and dominates them by permeating matter. To sum up, we can say that for Bruno, form and matter are not separate. The form is not superior to the matter, but both compensate each other in the unity of reality, not least because of the coincidencia oppositorum, the coincidence of opposites. Well, at this point of our dive into Giordano Bruno's thought, I would mention his important relation with Aristotle, who, as I have said above, is fundamental to a better understanding of Bruno's ontology and cosmology, especially with regard to the concept of nature, fusis, that is crucial for Bruno's pantheism. In particular, I refer to Bruno's Libri Physicorum Aristoteles Explanati, a comment on Aristotle's physics, an important comment to Aristotle's physics. Here, Bruno seems well aware of the debate over the concept of nature as found in Aristotle's Metaphysics 1, 3, and 5, 4, and in this latter passage in particular, Aristotle lists a possible, the possible meanings of the term nature as it was understood in pre-Aristotelian and Aristotelian speculation. On the one hand, 
nature can be the dimension of being as it is subject to becoming. On the other hand, the term can indicate the principle or the cause of becoming itself. In the latter sense, Aristotle also recalls the traditional four causes. The two meanings, nature as the place and the principle of becoming, imply one another mutually since nature is viewed as the totality of mobile reality and also as the principle that is shared by all becoming, uh, becoming entities. Aristotle also states that as the principle, nature is both cause and element, since each principle is also cause. And in ancient philosophy, principle had always been seen as a natural element. Therefore, in Aristotle, a close correlation exists between nature, principle, cause, and element. However, even though he bases his thesis on Aristotle, Bruno's approach is extremely peculiar in that he defines form and matter as the two species of nature, species in Latin, you can see, both having equal dignity. These two species, form and matter, generate everything and comprehend everything. This is completely different to Aristotle's viewpoint, which had always maintain, maintained that form is the primary cause of all things. I would briefly highlight that the difference between Aristotle's and Bruno's approaches may well have derived from the Neoplatonic and Hermetic structure of Bruno's thought. In fact, he seems to somehow reinstate the Hermetic theme of identity, of potency and act, matter and form, corporeal entity and soul. Bruno fully agrees with the Hermetic thesis according to which soul and cosmos are parts of nature, as stated in Asclepius 6 in, uh, in the Corpus Hermeticum. There exist infinite species, yet they all form one unity. So the whole is one and all things derive from it. Giordano Bruno affirms that form and matter are not separate and the form is not superior to the matter. They are the two principles of all that exists and compensate each other in the unity of reality. In living matter, which is full of forms and animated by the enlivening principle, there is no duality. Rather, potency and act are indivisible, even with respect to their dignity. And together, they constitute the universal whole. So the ontological unity of form and matter, and consequently of act and potency, implies identity between God and the universe, 
thus turning creation into the divine itself. In this way, matter is not divinized by action of an efficient cause. Rather, matter itself is intrinsically divine since divinity is immanent in all that exists. This is a pivotal point in Giordano Bruno's philosophy and it marks a fundamental distance between his thought and Christian theology. This pantheistic perspective is the metaphysical basis of Bruno's theory of infinite. In fact, since nature corresponds uh, to God, nature itself must be as infinite as God is. I would highlight that this thesis will also have cosmological and astronomical implications, but it is, first of all, a metaphysical and theological thesis. Indeed, according to Giordano Bruno, God manifests his infinite power by creating an infinite cosmos. This assumption is also present in Nicolas of Cusa. And in this sense, the need for an infinite universe made up of infinite worlds is justified by specific ontological assumption. The limitless, unlimited power of the first principle generates an equally endless effect. Since God is the act, the world, which is his reflection, is the manifestation of all possible forms. Hence, matter is made up of a plurality of entities, which through vicissitude follow the process of cosmic development. Deeming the infinite as act is what sets Bruno apart from Aristotelian scholastic philosophy. In conclusion, I have to mention also Nicolas of Cusa's notion of infinite, identifying the common themes, themes and the differences between infinite in Bruno and in Cusanus. This means also identifying the common themes and the differences between infinite in Bruno's philosophy and in the Christian one. The pioneer of Renaissance theory of infinite was Nicolas of Cusa, as was recognized by Bruno too. It is fundamental to say that Cusanus maintains a clear ontological separation between the, the one, God, and multiplicity, multiplicity God's sens sensitive contractio. Unlike Cusanus, Bruno affirms that divine infinity and material infinity actually coincide. God is thus both natura naturans and natura naturata. Also according to Cusano, God is infinite. Therefore, there can only be a plurality of words I'm referring uh, also to uh, uh, Professor Alberson's uh, last uh, webinar. 
according to Cusano, the space around them is also a reflection of the one whole, which must necessarily be infinite. An infinite universe populated by infinite worlds. The various means of divine contractions into the world are the sign of coincidence oppositorum, coincidence of opposites, when the maximum coincides with the minimum. However, according to Cusanus, there still is a very important difference between infinity in the divine and in creatures. And this is a fundamental difference between Cusanus and Bruno. In fact, Nicholas of Cusa maintains God's transcendence because God alone is the absence of all limits since God himself is the fullness of all possibility. In this case, oh, um, in, in the case of creatures, their infinity is connected to this concept of indeterminate. It is evident that this point is crucial to understanding the peculiarity of Bruno's pantheism. And so the distance between Bruno's thought and Christian thought and culture. Finally, I ask myself and you, do the concept of reason and beauty, as, as expressed by Giordano Bruno, define the infinite world and the infinite existing worlds as the poetry of God? Here are some bibliographical suggestions on Giordano Bruno. Uh, Giordano Bruno, Philosopher Heretic by Ingrid Roland. Um, Aristotle, Aristoteles by Giordano Bruno. Uh, Paul Richard Bloom. Okay, the classical. Uh, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition by uh, Francis Yates and uh, Giordano Bruno and Renaissance Science by Hilary Gatti. And in Italian, because Bruno was, was Italian, Sandro Mancini, La Sfera Infinita. And uh, uh, my book, uh, Totum et Unum, Giordano Bruno e il pensiero uh, antico. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Zafino. This is a, a very, uh, very engaging uh, uh, presentation. It's something we can all chew on and go back to uh, several times. Thank you so much for making time for us in your evening today. Indeed, uh, Professor Zafino, thank you on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute and the American Cusano Society. Uh, and I would welcome all of our viewers to uh, tune in again next week at the same time as we continue this series and to check out our upcoming uh, programs uh, that I mentioned at the outset of the program, uh, COVID and the Color Line and Pondering Hiroshima. Um, find out more details at our website. And if you want to support our work, uh, you can do so at www.lumenchristi.org donate. Otherwise, Professor Zofino, uh, on behalf of all of our viewing audience, thank you once more.
Thank you to uh, you both and to everybody. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It was a great pleasure for me. A real, the pleasure is all ours. Indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good night. Bye. Ciao. Ciao.